Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. Well, good evening, church. Um, If you're a guest, you're like, bro, what did we just read? Spiritual forces and a devil and evil. It could be like chaotic if you're watching online or you're a guest here for the first time. And so we spent last week really unpacking, um, is there a devil? What does spiritual warfare mean? Like, Aaron, do you really expect me to believe any of this stuff? And so if you're new and you're like, bro, I, I wanna know that information, you can go online and you can watch that sermon from last week because we're not gonna unpack that all again this week. But what we've been doing, if you're a guest, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And the first part of the book is the author named Paul and he's teaching us about what is the gospel? What did God do for us to give us a relationship with him? That's the first three chapters. Then the next chapters, four, five, and six are, what does the gospel mean for your relationships and our church and our community? And now it talks about how does the gospel impact sin in us or evil in the world? How does it impact the cosmic powers at B like demons or angels? And what does it all have to do with? So all of this is really, how does the gospel impact spiritual warfare? And last week, guys, I preached, I think one of the longest sermons I ever had. I think it recorded like 56 minutes and y'all hung in there the entire time. I won't do that to you again. Uh, But this is part two of a part three message. So again, this title is this is how does the gospel impact spiritual warfare? Just three points we're going to unpack today from today's text. Number one, why do we need armor? Why do we need armor? Number two, uh, what is that armor? And then number three, how do you practically put on the armor? Let's start with the first one. Uh, Why do we need armor? Verse 11 says this, the author of Paul writing to this church and he says, hey guys, listen, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. And again, I know we're modern thinkers, we're in the West and we're like, there is no such thing as devil or demons. And again, look last week, we really unpacked what that meant and how we could plausibly believe that to be the case. But we're saying first, why do we need this armor? Why do we need this armor? Because scripture says that there is an enemy, guys, who opposes you, opposes you. And the scripture calls him the devil. Now that's a really interesting way. If you uh, grew up as a kid and you watched cartoons, you thought the devil was the guy in a red uh, sort of leotard and he lived in a really hot place and he was the ruler of it and he had a pitchfork, right? That's kind of your idea of the devil. And again, that's sort of a scheme to make you think that the devil is the ruler of hell and that he's just this kind of happy guy or cranky guy. And that's sort of a scheme to make us think that he's like that. But who really is the devil? What does that really have to do with? Well, three things in this point I want you to see. Number one, he's evil. Number two, he's strategic. And number three, he wrestles. He's evil, he's strategic and wrestles. And that's why we need armor. So if we're gonna know how to battle, the sin that's in us, the evil in the world, not physically fight, but spiritually fight, we gotta know who the enemy is, right? If we're gonna battle something, if you're gonna play a sport and you're gonna compete against another team, you need to know what that other team plays like or who they are, right? That's what Paul's doing here. So he starts out by saying, hey guys, you're gonna need some armor because here's the other team. He's the devil and he has evil schemes. So Paul tells us so important truths about the other team, the enemy. Again, first note here, he tells us that he is evil. Verse 12 tells us that. Verse 12 says that we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now the word in verse 11 here, I don't want to nerd out too far, but just hear me out. The word in verse 11 for devil is diabolos or diabolos in Greek. It means slanderer. Like Satan is an adversary, we're learning. And that's a good, a good summary of what the evil one is. He opposes you. He is a liar. He's a distorter of truth. He has many names in scripture. The serpent, Beelzebul, 
the ruler of this age, the evil one, the dragon, the prince of the power of the air, lots of names. And all these names are given because that's what he does. He's wicked. He's cunning. He's a liar. And he comes to steal and kill and destroy. So we need to put on the armor of God. Why? Because he's evil and his attacks are evil. That's why we need it on. Number two, we see not only is he strategic or he's evil, but he's strategic. He's strategic. Verse 11, Paul says this, you got to put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes, the schemes of the evil one. Now, guys, we have a slide from last week. We're not going to go through all of them again, but there's a little book that Thomas Brooks uh, wrote, right? Talking about the remedies for the schemes of the enemy. And we talked about how the enemy tempts us in two different ways. He takes his attack plans and he has a portfolio and he has two tabs in his portfolio. I'm going to attack you with temptation and I'm going to attack you with accusation. Temptation, I'm going to show you something that you think you want. You're going to go for it. It's going to hurt you. Accusation is talking about your heart. You're terrible. You're not loved. You're unworthy. And then he does it in cycles. The enemy tempts you with the temptation. Hey, go after this thing. It will please you. It'll make your life better. You go after it. And then he's like, you went after that. You're a terrible person. How could you be a Christian? You're awful. How could you do that to your spouse? See, he works in these cycles. And so this is some of the schemes that the enemy does. He is strategic. And so we talked about how he tempts us and how he accuses us. And a common one we see is that he shows us the bait. This will be good. This will make you happy. This will give you comfort. But he never shows you the hook, the long-term damage of sin. Guys, if you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter three, you see these schemes. And what do you see Satan doing in the very beginning with the first two people in creation? Satan's not possessing them. He's lying to them. One pastor said it this way, Satan doesn't leave fang marks on your neck he leaves lies buried in your heart. The enemy is a liar. As we discussed last week, his two main schemes against you are temptation and accusation. And he does this again. He does it in you, your thoughts. We talked about some of those last week, some of the temptations, the thoughts we think about ourselves. He does it around you and your relationships with others and how he brings up strife and conflict. And he does it amongst nations and then he does it above you in these spiritual forces that are unseen to us, but real in how we see them play out. He's strategic, he's evil. And we see we need this armor, number three, because he wrestles. And this is a scary one to think about this for a moment. The enemy wrestles with you. This is odd. Verse 12, Paul tells us this. He says, guys, we don't wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against authorities, against the causing powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now guys, uh, first century wrestling was not what you see on TV. It wasn't WWE where you have guys in these weird costumes jumping off or women in weird costumes jumping off of the top of some metal caged ring with chairs and audience going, oh, like it was actually like real wrestling in first century. There was an intensity to it. There was a closeness to it. It was up close and intimate. It was aggression. It was actually life and death. It wasn't just let me pin you on the ground. Wrestling in first century was life and death. And the winner was who lived, the losers who died. And Paul's using this imagery to show you how the enemy operates. He's up close, he's personal, and he's looking to destroy he doesn't have some far off laser gun approach to us where he sort of seeks you in a scope from a distance and tries to snipe you down. He's up close, he's personal. He takes the battle to your mind and to your heart. He brings the battle home with you to your home or your apartment. He brings it into your bedroom. He brings it on your computer or the phone in your pocket through temptation. The battle is everywhere and in everything home, work, school, and more. He wrestles you. It's up close and it's personal. So this is why Paul says in verse 13, therefore, because the enemy is evil, because he's strategic, because he's up close and personal, therefore, we must take up the whole armor of God, right? That you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, 
and all having done, stand firm. So again, so what does this mean for us, right? How do you put on the armor of God? We're gonna unpack three things. We just unpacked the first one. Why do you need armor? What is the armor? How do you practically put on the armor? That was the first one. Why do you need armor? Because there's an enemy who's evil, he's strategic, and he's up close to you. Number two, what is this armor though? What is this armor? What is he referring to here? Well, what Paul means, which is really interesting, he talks about this idea of a whole armor. There's a, there's a covering that you're to put on. If you think about Boston, uh, the weather's been really odd lately, so the illustration doesn't work too well. But typically when it's really, really cold, you put on all of your gear, your whole gear. Have you ever been out where you forgot your toboggan, your hat, your scarf, your gloves? You forgot that one piece of your winter clothing? You felt it the entire time, didn't you? Like, I should have brought my gloves. Have you ever uh, like tried to chisel out your car from the snow and you forgot your gloves? That's terrible. That's like the worst part of the armor not to have on when you're trying to get it off your car. It's awful. Paul is saying, we've got to put the whole thing on, the whole spiritual covering on. And let me unpack what that means. He's saying, listen, Christian, in the room or online, listen. He says, I know you have faith. I know you have the righteousness of Christ. I know you have the peace that comes from the gospel, but you aren't using them. You're not applying them. You have them in your home, Aaron. You have the gloves for the winter in your home, but they're no use if they're in your house if you're outside with your car, right? He's saying you've got to use them, put on the whole armor. And sometimes you and I leave gaps, gaps in our thinking, gaps in our feeling, gaps in our actions. And we go out ill-prepared for the attacks that happen in us and around us. So he's saying here, we've, you often, you and I treat the pieces of the armor in our house like relics, right? We treat them like relics in our house rather than the realities in our heart. You're not putting them on. You're just talking about them in your community group. You're talking about the word of God or Christ's righteousness. You're, you're talking about them like they're relics in your house rather than realities in your heart. And it's good for us to point out the knowledge of how the armor works, but knowledge doesn't matter when you need wisdom, when you need application. We're bad at putting it on. So let me explain this, how it works out real practically for you for a moment. Let me give you an example of what happened in Jesus's life and ministry. You can look this up in Mark chapter four. It's another gospel in Luke chapter eight, but let me, let me share this with you for a moment. It's real practical. Uh, in this story, it talks about this armor moment, okay? It doesn't say armor, but all of it's there in reference to what we're talking about today. It's the story of Jesus in Luke eight, and he's with his disciples. And Jesus and the disciples are on a boat, they're on a sea, and then they're in the midst of some massive sudden storm that pops up, right? And some of you know the story. You're shaking your head. You remember it. And what's Jesus doing in the storm? He's asleep. He needs a nap. He's, he's fully God. He's fully human. He needs a nap. He's asleep on the boat with the disciples on the boat. Then suddenly a storm comes up. It's a sudden storm. It's a violent storm. The disciples get scared and they start to what? Panic. They freak out. They run over to him. You can imagine they're shaking him, kind of waking him up. And they say this, Mark 4 says, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Essentially, they're saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, don't you love us? We're going to die in the storm and you're just sleeping. You don't care about us. Then what does Jesus do? He gets up, he calms the storm, and then he calms the disciples. And do you know what he says to them? And it's really powerful. I want you to pick this up practically for you. He gets up and he turns to them and he says, where is your faith? Now here's what's interesting. He doesn't say you need more faith. Rather, he says, where is your faith? For instance, like get out your faith. Where is it? You have it. It should be here. Like your gloves in the winter, you have them, but where is it? Like, where is the, you're not using it. Like you're not putting it into practice. Because remember, if you know the story, what did Jesus say before they even got on the boat? He said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. Guess what they forgot? That God said, we're going to the other side. They forgot 
the promise in the midst of the storm. They put their faith, when the storm happened, they put their faith on the shelf and they're like, I don't know what to do. And they were frazzled and they were afraid. The circumstance of the storm caused them to forget the promise of God. They put their faith away in what God said when the storm showed up and you and I do the very, very same thing. Church, I'll tell you in a loving way, Church, I'll tell you that you're, you're often panicked, some of you, and you're stressed all the time, and you functionally believe just like the disciples did when the storm showed up. You say, God, you don't care for me well. Surely you don't. Therefore, I've got to handle this or that situation on my own. So you stress, and, and you're panicked, and you're mad at your roommate because they don't help you. You're mad at your spouse because they didn't help you either. You're mad at your kids because they're getting in the way. You're wanting someone to help you, but you believe that God is sleeping on you. They just doesn't care. So you're trying to wake him up. You wake up your wife and you wake up your kids and you wake up your coworkers and you're just angry and stressed and frazzled because the, whatever storm was happening and you forgot how God told you, he's with you. He promises to work out all things for your good. How he promises you a good and uh, a hopeful future that's in him. He promises to watch out for you and guide you even through the storms of life. Now, surely guys, if I asked you on a test, if I passed out sheets of paper tonight and I said, here are the questions, write this down. Uh, who is Jesus? All of you would get like an A. And if I wrote down true or false, does he love us? You guys would all write down true. He does love us. And if I asked you, uh, does he have the power to help you? All of you would say, yes. You would pass the test of faith but the test is not on paper, is it? It's in the circumstances of your life. And you don't answer it with the pencil in your hand, but you actually answer those questions with the attitudes and actions of your heart. That's what proves where your faith is. And when you're frazzled and you're angry and anxious all the time, like much of the time that I am, you're essentially saying, God, I don't, I don't functionally believe you are who you say you are you don't love me. You don't have the desire to help me or the power to do it. Does that make sense, guys? So Jesus says, where is your faith? Not that they don't have it, but they didn't bring it to war. That's what you and I do. That's what you and I do. When we're anxious about something, we think about all what could go wrong, not what could God be doing in the midst of it. Does that make sense, guys? This reshapes everything. You can't just live your life having theological truths in your brain if they don't impact the attitudes of your heart. That's what this spiritual warfare is all about. So again, Jesus says to them, where is your faith? Take the things you believe and you know, and you trust in them. So when the storm comes, here's what happens. If you take on the belt, you automatically and reflexively act as if you're infinitely loved. And if your future is secure and guided by Christ, you're not shaken by the storm because you don't just have thoughts in your brain that, oh yeah, God loves me and he has a future for me. You actually reflectively and reflexively think about when something happens, I'm secure. I know someone just got cancer hypothetically, or I know I just lost my job, or I know this unplanned thing happened, but I know that I'm loved. So there must be a purpose and plan in the midst of this. Does that make sense, guys? This is super crucial. That's what putting on the armor is. You, you bring it up. Putting on the armor is this. It's above all else. It's learning to take the truth in you, not just on your brain, but in you. It's the foundation to everything. It's learning to take the truth of and work it down into your heart. Paul is saying, I want you to take the truth of God's promises and of his character, and I want you to put them at the very center of your heart so that you don't just know them in your head, that you're accepted by God and you're loved by God, but that when this happens, you'll be secure. When you're, when you're criticized by a friend, when you're criticized at work, when you feel like you're failing at your job or you're parenting, when you're being criticized or you fail, you instinctively respond not to the circumstance, but the truth of who God is and what he thinks about you and what he feels about you and how he acts towards you. Does that make sense? I want you guys to reflexively, when, when the storm comes, you don't panic. 
You don't get frazzled and get angry at your spouse and each other because you know that someone else holds the storm. And that storm, in fact, if you read the narrative, right when you calm the storm, where'd the boat end up? It was automatically at the other side. The storm pushed them in the direction that God wanted them to go in the first place. Do you see? It's like four verses and it's a really powerful story. Take out the faith. Take out the theological truths that you've had at this church or other churches. You got to take them out and you use them deeply. So to put on the armor of God means that you take the things that are objectively true as a Christian, the promises of God about your past, about your present, about your future, and you drill it down into your heart. So when the storm comes, you instinctively and reflexively respond as a loved person, as an accepted person, as a wanted person, as a secure person. And that's what verse 10 is all talking about. Look at it again. Look at verse 10. This is what it's talking about. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. You take what's true about him and you live in it deeply. That's what it means to put on armor of God. You're putting on all the truths about what God says about you. It's about the privileges and promises of what the gospel has for you. You put them on, it creates new habits and new reflexes to life circumstances. That's what the armor is. You put on the promises and privileges of what God has given to you in the gospel. Do you see why we need it now? You see how practically this can be good for you? Number three, how do you and I actually do this practically though? What does it look like practically? Um, there are seven pieces of the armor. We're only going to go through three tonight because I'm not going to make you do back-to-back 56-minute sermons. So we're just going to stretch it into one other week and we're just doing three tonight. But we're asking, how do you practically put these things on? There's seven of them listed in this if you include prayer as one of them. And so it tells us to put on the belt of truth. It tells you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It tells you to put on the shoes of the gospel at peace. Tells you to put on the shield of faith. Tells you to put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of God's word. And lastly, you pray in the spirit. All of this imagery here is really Paul drawing up a first century Roman soldier that's prepared and ready to go into army against the enemy. And so he's drawing out some references of what he sees from Roman uh, soldiers and he's bringing it into the Christian world. So let's start with the first one, the belt of truth. And personally, guys, I think this one is the foundation for like all the other ones. And really the other ones are really just an application of this one, if that makes sense. I think this is just the the foundation, the rest of the application. So here's the first one, the belt of truth. Uh, The belt of truth, rather than again being a piece of the armor, is the very foundation of the armor itself. And let me show you. Uh, the Greek word that's used here is actually like a leather sheath. I know it sounds kind of odd when you think about a belt because you just put a thin belt maybe on your waist or some of us just use it for fashion. It doesn't hold up anything. It just is around your waist, <laughs> right? But back then, a belt was a thick leather sheath that sort of coated your body underneath the armor, like before you put it on. So it was almost like pants that you would put on that would go high, above your waist and it would go down to right around where your knees were. And so this would really cover your midsection, your stomach, kind of your, your, your chest, your, your, your private region. It would cover all of those areas from swords or from arrows. It would, it would guard you underneath. It was close and it was personal. The belt of truth, which is a little, little different than the sword of truth, which we'll get to in a few weeks. The sword of truth is really the Bible and you're supposed to use it in an offensive way. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. I don't want to spoil it. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But the belt of truth, I think, is more the objective truth of how you use the truth personally, if that makes sense. So sword, you think about this sort of external, you're kind of giving it to others. You're not stabbing others, but you're giving others the truth. But the belt is more personal. It's for you. It's truth covering you. The sword is giving it to the belt is something that's used for you. In other words, here's what we're saying. Unless you take the truth of God's word and you put it into the most intimate and private areas of your soul, 
Unless you take it deep inside of you, you can't put on the armor of God. The armor of God must first start with the belt of truth. It means you put it on, you take the truths of scripture and you read them, guys. You embrace them, you digest them, you make them a part of yourself. That's what the belt of truth is. It's the word of God that's embraced and believed and used daily. So how do you actually put this thing on? If it's supposed to be up close and it's, it's personal, it's what you put on before the armor, how do you put it on? Well, first off this, let me just share this. I know it seems obvious for some of us, but the first thing you've got to do means that you actually have to believe what the Bible says objectively. Like you actually have to take it and read it and you believe it's true. You believe it's real. You believe it's right. You believe it's good for you. That's the first thing. I know that seems kind of basic for us, but when you look at the Bible, is it just a, a, a bunch of fables or is it, is it history or is it just poetry and everything's kind of figurative? And we talked about this in one of our uh, systematic theology classes that we did at our church. Um, but without going into too far of it, first thing we have to do, if we want truth to cover us, we have to look at it and says, you're actually what you say you are. You're true and you're right and you're real and you're good. And I'm going to believe you as such. The second thing, how you've got to practically put it on is this really important. You have to settle in your soul, like right now, settle in your soul. How am I going to respond to these truths? If the Bible is true, if it is right, if it is helpful for your flourishing, if it is God's word, then right now, before you get too far in the application, you've got to settle. How am I going to respond to these truths? Am I going to pick out and choose what I want to believe because of how it makes me feel? how it's convenient to follow? Or am I going to let God be my commander in chief? Does that make sense? Because remember, this is a warfare analogy here. A soldier is someone who says, listen, I'm under the orders of another. A soldier willingly puts themselves under the word and direction of another. And to us, this is God and his word. We're a soldier in his army, it's saying, against this enemy and we're to put ourselves willingly under his word and direction. So are you going to trust and follow God's word or are you going to be selective with it? Listen, you've got to settle that because when you come to a passage that you don't like, that you disagree with, that doesn't feel quite right to you, then you're going to buck back. You're going to, you're going to go your own way and that own way may cause you hurt and harm. Listen, our day and age, our slogans, what when we make decisions? It used to be YOLO in early 2000s when I was growing up, right? Just YOLO, you got one life, live it, you know, whatever. Now it's kind of like follow your heart, trust your gut, you know, this follow your truth, like all of those type of things. But what happens when you follow your gut and you followed your heart? How'd that work out for some of your dating relationships? Like how did that work with some of your decisions that you made financially? You followed your gut and now how are things? I think you and I can look honestly and say, I don't know if my gut always has the right feelings. I don't know if I can always depend on my self. So what God does is he gives us these, this path of this way of life that's good for us. And so you've got to settle it in your heart now before you get to a past that you're just not going to like. Is it true? Is the Bible real? Is it good for you? Did God preserve it throughout history so you could know what he has to say for your good? You've got to settle that now because when you get to a passage that you just don't, your gut tells you you don't like it, you're going to kick back. doesn't mean you just eject your logic or just jump off the edge and you just blindly follow. But God is calling you to, to lean in with your logic and to trust his word, knowing that he is more logical than you are about whatever issues at play. Guys, also the reason you need a belt uh, in the first century time, which gives application for us, you needed a belt in first century time because they didn't wear like jeans or khakis or what we do, right? In first century, a soldier at the time would be wearing sort of this long flowing robe, a tunic, right? You guys have seen some of those pictures from first century. The only way you could ever use your armor uh, when you had to get ready for action is you have to pick up all of that robe skirt and you got to put it somewhere. You're not going to rip off your clothes, get naked when you go out to fight. Like you got to, you got to put that somewhere. Where do you put it? You, you pick up your robe skirt and you tuck it in your, your belt. You tuck it in that leather sheath that's covering your body. So you're ready for action. The whole idea of the belt of truth means this for us practically. It means you take your scattered robe, your scattered thoughts, your scattered ideas, so you don't trip over them. You gather them up like clothing and you put them in the belt of truth. 
You focus your clothing into the belt so you're ready for action. So do you see the analogy there? In many of our cases, your minds, guys, your minds are scattered. Your thoughts are scattered. You're worried. And you're thinking, well, what if this happens? And, and what if that happens? And some of us are, like, including me, we're, we're, we're frazzled and we're just scattered all the time. And First Peter, in the book of First Peter, Peter says this. He says, stop. He says, gird up your loins of your mind with scripture. Take up those extra pieces of flowing skirt and fabric. And you, you take those things and you gather them in the belt of truth. So guys, what are you worried about? What are you anxious about? What are you frazzled about? Have you gathered those scattered thoughts where they're taking you? What if this happens? And what if that happens? And you're worried about this and you're trying to control all the areas of your life. What if you just kind of took them together and you face them towards God's word? You gathered them up and you put them underneath the belt of truth. What is God saying about my life? Why am I anxious about the future? Is he not there? Why am I upset about the past? Was he not there to forgive you then? What am I supposed to do about this? What, do you think he not cares? Is he not wise to give you? And so our circumstances not change, but when we tuck it in the belt of truth, you can breathe. You can be settled. The scripture teaches that if you're living a defeated life, kind of you're walking around and you're cast down and you're, you're heavy hearted and you're kind of tripping around over the robe of your thoughts and your emotions, it's because you've not gathered your thoughts into the word of God. You're not searching it and letting it search you. A defeated life reveals that you're not taking the word of God and putting it around the personal private areas of your life and you're not centering your being on it. So I want you to take a moment, everyone in here online, take a moment for yourself and ask yourself, how thoroughly, how thoroughly am I searching the scriptures? How thoroughly am I searching the scriptures and how thoroughly am I letting the scriptures search me, my own heart, my own struggles? And yes, guys, this does take time. Time that you and I feel like we don't have, right? We're rushing out the door, trying to make our coffee. We're lucky we got our pants on right, the socks on the right feet, shoes on the right feet. If we have kids, it's a miracle every day that we even get out of the house every day, right? Like, it, like all of that, right? You feel like you don't have the time, but listen, if you take this seriously, it actually saves you a lot more time that you would use for stressing and freaking out. Taking God's word in every day is actually a wise cost time benefit where you're like, I don't need it today. I'm fine, whatever. It's actually wise for you. In fact, you can't afford not to take the time to do it because if you don't take time in God's word, you'll end up wasting more time than if you would have done it in the first place because you'd have been stressed, freaking out, frantic, scattered, all that. You guys with me? Like, this is super vital for us to get. It takes discipline and you have to put time aside to do it. And God through Christ in the gospel is waiting for you wants to meet you where you are, wants to care for your heart. Jesus went through every trial and every temptation that you went through. Every trial, every temptation. Guys, if you think about it for a moment, if I can just take a quick pause, like this is how intimate God's care and trials and temptation were. Um, some of my really good friends are struggling with gender dysphoria. They feel like the body that they have on the outside is very different than how they feel on the inside. And Jesus tells us in Hebrews that he's been through every trial and every struggle. And like, Jesus, you never went through that one. You have no idea what it feels like to be in a body that's very different than how you feel on the inside. But for a moment, I want to show you how intimately Jesus wants to meet you where you're at. Do you remember when he was on the cross? Jesus, the perfect one, what did he take on himself? Something that did not feel natural. He took on sin. Jesus can understand the concept of dysphoria. A perfect one taking on the sins of the world? How chaotic must have that have felt? How can life take on death? How disorienting would that have been? Jesus can even meet us in the complexity of something like gender dysphoria. And he waits to meet us with his word, his care. He has dealt with every trial and temptation experience and he's waiting for you to care for you. Would you give him the time? Because it helps you with your panic your worry, your stress, your anxiety. Guys, they're coming your way and Jesus wants to meet you through the word. Guys, there's this really cool hymn. We don't sing it at our church because there's some lines that make it sound like we're all just gonna go out and fight the government. <laughs> and I'm really not about that. Uh, we're gonna go fight education system. We're gonna just, I wanna make sure we just have our songs framed rightly. But there's this really cool hymn 
uh, by Ralph Vaughan Williams. And it illustrates this point really, really well. And his song is called For All the Saints. And there's a line in this song that goes like this. I'm not gonna sing it, I'm just gonna say it. When the strife is fierce and the warfare is long, steals on the ear distant triumph song. And the hearts are brave again and the arms are strong again. Now you're like, bro, that sounded cool. What did you just say? Why is that line so good? Because it paints this picture of you and me fighting in a battle that we're losing and we're feeling so overwhelmed, a very common daily experience for us, right? But then all of a sudden, off in the distance, you hear the chant of reinforcements on the way. It says, steals on the ear, the the distant triumphant song. You hear the chant of reinforcements on the way. It's this low rumble. And their their growing call you can hear and just barely visible in the distance. Now at their sound in this picture, nothing actually changes in your circumstance in the battle, right? You're still at war and you're tired and your enemy hasn't gotten weaker, but something happens in you when you hear that truth that they're coming, right? You sense strength growing up in you. You become hopeful again that victory is coming. You find a new resolve to to fight back because you know victory is going to be yours, guys, right? This new information, the new truth on the way creates a new resolve in you, a new hope again. That's what's putting on the belt of truth is like when you're in the battle and you're struggling and you see in the distance how it's not always going to be this way, the struggles in your marriage, the struggles financially, it's not always going to be this way. In fact, there's a kingdom of heaven one day that we'll be in where all of that will go away. And God's even in the midst of this storm now working in and through. Does that make sense, guys? That's why I love that hymn because it rearranges our whole thinking when we understand truth, when we're combated with it in the scripture when we're reading it, it, it changes us and it gives us hope for the future. So guys, I want you to take the belt, take God's word and put it close to you. Like memorize it, like, like read it. In our shower at home, it's kind of awkward to, to give you this scene, but just, just imagine us looking at in the shower, okay? But just you look at the shower and on the back of it, um, we put up a, a, uh, like a little plastic um, a paper holder. And inside the paper holder, we just put different scripture in there. And so when in the shower, you're just looking at the scripture and you can memorize the scripture that's in there. If you're like, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to do this. That's a practical way that you can just read a passage. So I print out Ephesians chapter six and I put it in the shower and I'm reading through it. I'm trying to memorize it. A silly idea, but in some regard, you're trying to keep the truth in front of you. You're trying to keep it close to you. You're trying to think, well, what's real? What's happening? My wife, if you go into our bathroom again, not trying to give you weird pictures, but if you on the mirror, she's got all these scriptures that's on the mirror, prayers that she's praying for our little girls. And she kind of marks it out. We're trying to put scripture close to us. How are you seeking to do this? We're not doing perfectly. How are you doing? How are you keeping it close to you? Because listen, if you look at your life and you're frazzled and you're bothered and you're angry and you're, you're just constantly, ah, It's because something else is closer than truth. It's what you believe reality is. But if God can be still and calm and asleep in the midst of a storm, then maybe he can give you that calmness, that centeredness, that closeness to him in the midst of your storm. Make sense? That's the belt of truth. That's also why we're going through just three today because I spent that much time on one. Okay, number two, the breastplate of righteousness. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, whether you're a modern American or whether you're from ancient Greece or you're Roman, um, we all have this idea of what the heart is. You can read it in literature. Uh, It says, I love you with all my heart. What are you saying? You're not saying I love you with every ounce of blood in me. Let me tell you how many ounces and how many fibers of heart. You're not saying, I love you from the very seat of my emotion, the very seat of who I am. That's what heart is. Is And that's what a breastplate is covering. It's covering the very seat of your emotions, the seat of your deepest feelings about yourself. And so what makes your emotions so deep are the deepest part of your motives and your feelings about yourself and about others. And so Paul is saying, how are you protecting that part of you? And guys, some of you are so vulnerable here. Some of you are in a constant roller coaster of emotion and feeling about your own self. Some of you are just being jerked all around by your emotions. And frankly, we all are in some regard, even if you process emotions differently than others in the room. 
And what Paul is saying is that the breastplate is what protects the most vulnerable part of your personality. And that's the heart. It's the center of how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world. So what are you and I gonna do in order to protect the most vital and sensitive area? And Paul says in verse 14, we've got to put on something to cover it. And that's the breastplate of what? Of righteousness. Of right- That's very interesting. Why would he say righteousness? That righteousness needs to cover your heart? Doesn't make any sense. I want a bulletproof vest of death or something like that is what I want over my heart. Not a breastplate of righteousness. Why does righteousness need to cover my heart? Now listen, every one of you here online, all of us are very, very different people, different circumstances and experience, but all of us seek to use some version of a breastplate to cover your emotions and your feelings about yourself in the world. All of us are using some covering and most of them don't work out well. They're flimsy, they're plastic, they're cheap, and they don't protect your hearts very well. Listen, your righteousness can be whatever you think enables you to lift your head up and say, yeah, I'm a good person. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a valuable person. Like, I'm a good person. That's what your righteousness is, is what allows you to hold your head up high and say, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Look at my job. Like, I'm a social worker. Of course I'm a good person. Or you might like, I'm a doctor. I work in the hospital. I, I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a caring person. Like, you might be a stay-at-home parent. You're like, dude, look at all that I sacrificed to take care of my, Whatever the case may be, there's some righteousness that allows you to hold your head up high and say, yeah, I'm good. I'm right. I'm, I'm a valuable person. We may say I'm a sincere person. I'm a courageous person because of X, Y, and Z. I'm an attractive person. Everyone has some righteousness. Everyone has a breastplate that they're trying to use to deal with the onslaught of their own thoughts, others' thoughts and emotions. But someday, listen, someday, if it hasn't happened already, and for some of you, because we've talked, I know it's already happened, but someday that fake plastic flimsy breastplate is gonna begin to break. It's gonna begin to crack. The arrows start getting in. You start feeling cast down and disappointed because no longer are you as good of a parent because you got another kid. Or at work, you got promoted and people are getting a little disgruntled at you. Or you thought you were gonna be great because you had all these ideas when you're going through grad school and all of a sudden you get your first job and you're like, maybe I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And we hoped that certain things would happen that didn't happen, things that should happen, never happened. And we're devastated. We start kicking ourselves. We start feeling horrible about ourselves. We feel like a failure. We feel worthless. Why do we feel this sometimes? Why? Because you put something else as a covering for your worth and value. And that's, that's the type of thing Paul is talking about. He's talking about replacing a false sense of worth and value with a real one that comes from God in Christ. If you go to Philippians chapter three, the same author that wrote Ephesians is writing Philippians and he tells you, hey, listen, you wanna have a false righteousness battle about who's more worthy or who's more good? He's like, I'll beat your pants off is basically what he says in, in modern terms, right? He's like, I'll beat you. I was a Pharisee and I was fasting and I was tithing. I was born in the right family. I was morally upright. I was great at everything until I realized that that wasn't enough. That didn't cover me. I still had value issues and image issues and insecurity issues and failure issues. So instead of putting on fake righteousness, we put on Christ's righteousness where you say, listen, I'm a Christian because of what God has done for me. I'm valuable because my life was so precious that someone had to die to purchase me, to bring me to a new family. I was so wanted and loved that someone else wanted to bring me into their family and they wanted to be with me for all of eternity. That proves a worth and value, not that parenting can give you, not that a job can give you, not that a business can give you. We must put on the right sort of righteousness. Maybe in this room tonight, guys, some of you are feeling guilty over some sin you're dealing with, and you're like, man, how can I go to God? I keep doing this sin over and over. Maybe the enemy is doing this to you now, and you're thinking, how can I go to him over and over? How can I go before God with what I keep doing? And so you put on this fake righteousness, and you're like, I, I just try to do better. I'll just try harder. I'll stop sinning as much as I did yesterday. But if you're feeling a sense of guilt or shame for the sins you keep doing, Here's what the gospel says. Jesus Christ is actually your acceptability to God. 
not your moral performance. God accepts you because of what Christ did on your behalf. He's your acceptability. He's your wisdom. He's your righteousness. He's your access to him. He's your forgiveness. And so maybe some of you in this room, you feel spiritually dry, maybe. You've been a Christian for a while and maybe your prayer life isn't as good. You feel in a rough spot. Your marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Work is hard. Roommates are difficult. You just feel spiritually dry. You don't feel much love for God. You don't get special feelings in your heart and worship. And when we point some of these things out, you're like, what, what, what's happening to me? And maybe I'm not a Christian or maybe I got to do things right. And you feel like you're a failure. And maybe you're letting your feelings be your righteousness. Your feelings, how you feel about your relationship with God is what makes you a good, right, or valuable person. Guys, false righteousness can take on so many forms. It can be a dating relationship, makes you feel valuable, a certain pay that you get, a financial stability. If I can get a house or I can care for this, I gotta be a good parent, makes me a good moral person. I gotta do foster care. I gotta do adoption. I gotta be in church leadership. Your righteousness could be anything, the fake one. And that's why I love this great song, Cornerstone, we often sing. It's about Christ's real righteousness. And it says, my hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, whether that be parenting or a job or relationship or status or foster care or leadership. I don't trust the sweetest frame to give me value, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Church, that's how you put on the breastplate of righteousness. You look to the cross and say, that proves my value and my worth. That's what makes me significant and wanted because someone went through all of that for me. Does that make sense, guys? And if you're still wondering, what's the proof of that? Look at the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is like a receipt of payment. If you ever feel accused of your sin, that you're a trash person, you're never good enough, you'll never amount to anything, you're always a failure, look at the resurrection because God would not have let Jesus raise from the grave if he didn't intend to secure you in your love and value and significance. So the resurrection is like a receipt, a proof of payment that you are significant he didn't just die for you, but he rose to you to prove to you. Like if you're leaving the store and you bought something, what's the proof that you bought it? It's the receipt so you can keep on going. What's the proof of your value and worth? It's this resurrection where God holds it out for you still alive today. Christ says, you are enough. You're loved, you're valuable. I've got you, you're secured. You, you get what I'm saying? This is how you put on the righteousness of Christ. Last thing, talked about the belt, talked about the breastplate of righteousness that covers this central place of how you think about yourself, how you feel about yourself. And you've got to see how God thinks and feel about you. We see that perfectly displayed at the cross. The last thing is the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. We've got to put those things on. There was an ancient historian. His name was Josephus. Some of you may have heard him as a Jewish scholar. He even wrote about Jesus being a historical figure. It's a kind of a non-biblical resource that even gives us proof that Jesus didn't just was a moral fable, but things that he actually said and did were actually recorded by uh, another historian, Josephus, even showing us that Jesus is who he says he is. Josephus says that one of the things that made the Roman soldiers so powerful in the first century was their effective footwear. Uh, Caesar issued these guys like these half-studded boots uh, that allowed them to go to places where the normal soldiers could not go. They could go up mountains and across rocks and through the mud. They could hide in nooks and crannies and it made them super skilled. They could, they could hold their ground. And that was just so uncommon when they had just sort of these paper thin uh, foot grips but these half-studded boots that they could move through and allow things to happen. They could go long, long distances and they could endure much terrain. And Paul says, be ready, be equipped to go into tough and to challenging and uncharted terrains with the gospel is what he's saying. Essentially, Paul again is saying, you gotta be ready, you gotta be equipped to go into tough and challenging uncharted social terrains to share your testimony and the good news of Jesus. We gotta be ready to share. How's that going for you? How readily and willingly do you put on the gospel shoes each morning? Like, do you wake up each day and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna look for an opportunity to share my faith, to pray for someone, to give the gospel. How often do we do that? There's so many mornings we practically do not put on the gospel shoes when we go to work. We go on the T, go on an Uber, talk to a roommate, 
whatever the case may be. We're very individual minded. We're like, God, thank you for dying for my sins so I could be with you. I love you personally, but I don't really care what anyone else believes. I don't care if they end up with you in heaven. I don't care where they end up. I don't care what happens. I'm just gonna care about me. And God is saying through Paul, you can't just do that. This love is too big for even just you. You've got to get on gospel shoes and go to hard terrains, challenging conversations. You've got to share the gospel. This is what a soldier should do because they're being attacked too by the same thoughts you struggle with. Your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers have the same temptations, same accusations. They feel like a failure. They feel like they're getting beat up by the enemy and you and I walk right by him. We got the sword, we got a belt, we feel good, got the helmet of salvation. We walk by, we tiptoe because we don't have the shoes on. We just tiptoe right by. We don't want to make a scuffle. We don't want to make them mad. We don't want to have an awkward conversation. We don't want to lose a friendship. And so we just tiptoe around them all through our life. And do you know where they end up? Have you had that conversation? Are they with the Lord? Guys, this isn't, a, this isn't a joke or it's not a game. It's very clear that we're to put on gospel shoes to be ready to share this. Guys, we are to take the word of God and to speak it into people's lives. Guys, this is why, in fact, community group for a Christian is so important. Sometimes it's not ideal to come to community group. It's a hard week for you or you're like, I didn't get that much out of it. I totally understand those weeks. But some, even though you didn't get something out of it, maybe someone in the group needs something out of you. You need to go with your gospel shoes and share a message of hope or care, lend your ear of understanding. Maybe community group wasn't for you, it was for them. So you put on your gospel shoes before CG and you go and you share. So again, let me ask you, how willingly are you wearing your gospel shoes each day? To your coworker, to your neighbors, or do you think like this? Like, do you just sort of wait for your friend or neighbor to come to you if they have a question? Like, do you kind of like say, hey, you bring me my shoes. And if you bring me my shoes, I'll put them on. I'll share the gospel with you. Because that's how a lot of us operate the gospel conversation, sharing your faith. Is if, sure, if they, bring the, if they bring the shoes to me and they ask me, I'll put them on. I'll share it with them. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He says, no, you put them on and you go to the hard terrains, the difficult conversations. It's a very different picture. Well, why don't we just wait for our neighbor to ask us? Number one, because that rarely happens. Has anyone knocked on your door recently at your apartment? Like, I finally found a Christian. You must tell me, what is this good news you believe? Has that happened to anybody? I've happened to have that one time happen in my entire life. One time. This is my professional career. And that's happened one time in my life. One time. And I kind of already knew the person. They're just like, hey, I really feel convicted by God about my sin. I really want Jesus. I want to follow him. And like, they came to my house, like unannounced. This one time. But that often doesn't happen. And that's not the picture that Paul is saying here. If so, he would say this, equip, your chair, equip yourself with the chair of waiting and wait for the gospel shoes to be brought to you. That's what he would say. He doesn't say that though. He says, no, you don't wait for others to ask you about what you believe, although that's still a fine approach. It's just not what this is talking about. You gotta be equipped with gospel shoes. We've gotta step into hard terrain, go long distances to make the gospel known. Guys, that's why you started a church here. That's why you, many of you in this room, you moved your family from Brookline. You moved it from another state. You came here because you put on the gospel shoes and you went a long distance. The question is, did you take off those shoes now? Did you start getting comfortable? Start building your life, your home for you? Do you put on those gospel shoes anymore? That's what this passage is talking about. So how do you prepare? What's a practical example of this? Guys, every day, and sometimes we do this with our girls, sometimes we don't. When we're putting on their physical shoes, we say a quick prayer. Lord, would you lead us to someone who doesn't know you today and help us be bold to share with them about who you are? Really simple prayer. Now, am I on the T holding up the sign, turn or burn? No. Am I saying repent? You know, like, all, like it might, no. But it, am I looking in, am I ready? Am I ready for those conversations? Do, do I sort of lean in at that? Do I, do I kind of ask what someone's maybe doing around the holiday? Do they, do they need some, to go to church somewhere? Do, do, are they gonna spend the holidays by themselves? And how, how can I, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying I'm perfect at something. I'm saying like, are, are we even ready for any of that to happen? Most of us, if someone did come up to your work and ask you to share your faith, would you be like, uh, I don't, uh, are you ready? Even if they did come to ask you that. 
Another easy application is we've got Easter coming right around the corner. Guys, Easter is one of the easiest times for American Westerners to be invited and come to church. One of the easiest ways. So a practical application is maybe who is one or two people that you're in the sphere of relationship with and you just invite them to come to Easter service. You invite them to come to spend time with you and you're like, hey, it's okay if you don't even believe like me, we want to invite you. It's open to anyone to, to come. Why don't you come with me? We're going to have a meal after service for all of our people in the church. So if they don't even want to come to hear the message, just be like, hey, we're going to have great, awesome food at the very end. Come and endure the message and then come get great food. Invite them to that. That's a great practical example. Also outside in the lobby, we actually have church um, cards. It's, a, it's actually a coffee card. It's got a little information about our church and you can give that to someone. And that's actually a coffee card to fuel. We have a partnership with a, a non-Christian coffee house and we run a tab with them. You go and you turn in those card and we pay, our church pays for them to have a cup of coffee. It's a great way to start a conversation with someone. Someone's asking about uh, church or you, they're, they're new uh, to your work or they're, they're uh, a roommate. And you're like, hey, I just wanna give this to you. Our church was passing out. And this was uh, a free coffee card from our church. We'd love to have a cup of coffee on, on us or maybe we'd love to, to hear what you, uh, you know, believe or uh, have values in one day. Maybe I can take you out. We can have something uh, to eat together. I'd love to hear your story about your own life and what you believe. We kind of haven't had that. We've been roommates for a while, but I, I, we've never actually had that conversation. I, I'd love to take you out and talk a little bit about that. There's multiple thousands of routes you can do it, but I'm just saying, are you ready? Guys, one more piece of this. We've got one guy in our church. He's not here today because he's probably out being gospel to somebody. No, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, Josh Oswald is a part of our, our church. And what's really cool about Josh is he really nerded out at the very beginning of our church plan. Not that he's not doing it now, but he really nerded out. We had like wristbands that had our website on them. We had like Koa pens. We had the coffee cards. And that dude just nerded out. He wore like the, the Koa t-shirt. He just like bought the whole package. He put on the boots. He put on the armor. And he went out there and he had his Koa shirt, his Koa pen, and his Koa wristband. He was on the tee and someone actually saw him have that, that on his wrist. They were new to Boston. And the guy came up to Josh. He's like, hey, are, do you go to that church that's on your wristband? Josh's like, yeah, I go to sit on a hill. We just started it. And do you, do you, were you interested? Did you want to come? Was that him? Oh, I thought that was him for a second. I was like, Ooh, yeah. Sorry. Good boy, Ben. Sorry. Um, so uh, that, that guy starts coming to his church and he starts bringing his non-Christian wife. Not bringing non-Christian wife. They start coming to one of our community groups. And she's like, I'll never go to a church like that. They don't even have their own building. We don't even know what's going on. Like they got t-shirts. I'm never going to something like that. She becomes a really good friend of our family, a community group. And then she places her faith in Christ. And right now, every Sunday, they don't even go to our church, but they, they give some money to our church to care for the ministry of our church. And they're members now of another church on the North Shore. Guys, like th this is the craziness about the preparation of someone wearing nerd out paraphernalia of the church being ready to have conversations. And Josh was ready. If you even know the story of Josh Yoon in our church, Josh Oswald got connected with him. He's like, hey, why don't you come to this church? And we baptized Josh Yoon as a part of our church. He trusted in Christ. I'm not saying Josh Oswald is the perfect example of everything in the world, please. I love Josh, but I'm just saying it's a good example of someone just being ready. How ready are you to share the gospel with 5.8 million people in Boston? If they even asked you, would you be ready? Guys, we must take the gospel into hard territory, challenging conversations with family. Guys, I'm going to visit my uncle and my, my uncle's girlfriend this weekend and my cousins. And um, we haven't seen each other since the passing of my grandfather. And a lot of tension we had is that my grandfather and I would have these gospel conversations in the house and all my cousins would get irritated with me and my uncle and my, my uncle's girlfriend just, to, just because we were talking about faith and they just didn't like any of that Grateful that our family did. My grandfather, as I told you, came to faith in Christ the week that he passed away. It was just wonderful, but we're, we're going back to have some hangout time. And it always inevitably comes up what I believe or what I do as a job. And it gives an opportunity to gently have conversations, to ask, to listen, to gently confront with care about the gospel. So I even ask that you pray for our family as we go to Delaware this week and, and how to navigate all of this stuff. So because what I'm trying to say is we've got to put on our gospel boots. There's so much warfare, so much evil and sin in us and around us that our neighbors have got to know. So whether you're a guest today, whether you're a newcomer, whether you're a Christian, guys, in the midst of this whole analogy of war, there's a message of peace. 
the gospel shoes of peace and all of this of war, it tells us that you and I can have peace with our anxiety and our stress and our worry if we come to Christ and see that he paid for your sin, that he gave you grace, you can have an inward peace, an outward peace, an upward peace, a peace knowing that you're loved and you're secured and you're guided through life, your future's cared for. You can have peace. Jesus offers this peace by faith alone in him. It's in his strength and in his might and his armor that you can have this peace. So guys, let's not go around barefoot. We have a gospel that gives us peace. So if you're not a Christian, you're a guest, you're a newcomer, you're online, we ask that you trust in Christ, receive the peace that you need with God and with your own thoughts and heart. Would you trust in what he's done for you? And then lastly, you take this message, you ready your heart, you ready your feet, and you go to your neighbors, you go to your friends, go to your coworkers, and you give them this peace. No more excuses, no more debates, no more, you don't know how hard it is for me, Guys, Paul was beaten, persecuted, in jail, ended up being crucified. And Paul's the one telling you it's worth it. There's no excuses. Let's make this gospel known because of the love of what God has done for us. Amen? Those are the first three things. Next week, we'll talk about the last. Let's pray.